Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we visit New York City and talk to Chris Clayman, who's the co-founder of Global Gates and the author of a new book called Superplan. And there in England, and these Japanese friends would go to church with me, Bible studies I'd started, prayer groups. And both of these Japanese girls, towards the end of the year, they're very private and uh, didn't want to share all of their feelings throughout the year, what they were learning and thinking about. But towards the end of the year, they both said, you know, we really want to follow Jesus. We could never do this because we've never met a Christian where we're from. I come from Texas, you know, uh, most people would claim to be Christian. <laughs> I, I'd hardly met someone who, I've never met anyone who said they'd never met a Christian. I said, I don't know much about being a missionary, but I can be the one Christian someone knows. And so then I just started really uh, understanding what God has been doing in, in the world among all the different people groups, finding out that 42, 43% of the world's people groups are still unreached with little or no Christian presence. Uh, and that led me to Mali, West Africa. I was supposed to coordinate volunteers. I would have never have done evangelism or church planning. That was too scary for me right out of college. Uh, it was a month after 9-11 when I went to New York or went to, uh, to Mali. And apparently a lot of people did not want to travel to Muslim mm-hmm. countries right after 9-11, especially when your country has put bin Laden uh, stickers on the public transport vehicle right next to 1980s Madonna stickers. You know, it was like celebrity status in Mali. And I ended up doing evangelism and church planning stuff in, in Mali, uh, eventually getting uh, pretty sick, which led me to leave. Uh, and then just through the years, learning from, from other people that have had a lot more experience and fruit than I have, just wanting a, a taste of I know what I know God wants to do in the world. One story when I, I knew that I really wanted to be involved in this evangelism church planning thing is uh, there are so many people that you greet along the way in the streets of Mali. I picked up the language of Bambara pretty quick and so you'd get these greetings. And there was one guy that I always passed by, just greeted, never really talk to more than that. And one day he said, hey, I want to come and talk to you. Why don't you talk to me about Jesus? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> well, uh, I can do that, obviously. Um, and so we set some time to talk and I plan to go through this long kind of chronological Bible story series where I would take a full day and go through 30 Old Testament stories. And the next week we'd get to Jesus and that first day over lunch, I'd gone through some of the, the stories of the first prophets. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he turned to me, my African name is Mamadou. And he said, Mamadou, he said, this is all very good. But when, when are we going to talk about Jesus? Uh, he says, I, I had a dream. I said, oh, well, tell me about your dream. He says, well, a few days ago, it was you and it was me and a whole bunch of Malian people. And we were standing by a river, but this river wasn't normal. It was crystal-like and glossy and uh, it was shining with a bright light. And this voice came from the river and said, who's that standing next to you? He said, that's Mamadou, my American friend. And the voice from the river said, listen to what Mamadou tells you, especially listen to what he tells you about Jesus, for this is especially true. Omar, don't let this go. 
Mm. I said, okay, okay, we're talking about Jesus. <laughs> uh, so that day, uh, Omar later said, today has become a party because today I found God, uh, mm. accepted Christ, began to follow him. And uh, that's when I began exploring, well, why don't I just start a church among Omar, with Omar and his compound in this kind of lower class neighborhood. And as I really prayed about that, I, I left the city and mm. ended up still um, discipling him from a distance, but moved to, in fact, he moved me he, uh, with me and spent the first week with me at, uh, among the Wasalu ethnic group. It was an ethnic group of around 140,000 people and around 3,000 villages. And there was no Christian known of among the entire ethnic group, no missionaries trying to reach them. I was 20 two maybe <laughs> and this was like no electricity no running water yeah. uh no hope of it even still today anytime soon uh but they traced their history back a thousand years and could not name any christian among mm. their among their people and so i moved there and it was amazing to see a, an interest in the gospel and jesus um, but no one had ever never been among them. And so it was there when I moved my residence. Uh, I was only there a short period when I came down with a, a, the second worst case of malaria the main doctor in Mali had ever seen for someone taking a prophylaxis. I didn't ask him how the first one ended up. Mm. I just knew that mm. I had quinine treatment through IV for three days. And when I woke up, my legs were like jello. I couldn't really uh, stand or walk. Mm. And saw all the doctors you could see, they all said the same things. I don't think you're going to die, but who knows what's happening. In the meantime, I just kind of kept on going downhill, downhill, another bout of malaria, other diseases. And basically, my body started eating itself to keep my heart beating, I later found out. And after a month there, I was medically evacuated, uh, kind of the first medevac. <laughs> there was the second one a year later. Uh, and three and a half years of kind of ongoing sickness and, and illness as a result of that. But it, that time in Mali really uh, cemented uh, that calling of wanting to be a part of a, a bigger story and not just um, what was comfortable or even just necessarily inviting Jesus into my life because people would mm -hmm. look at those circumstances and they'd say, well, obviously this wasn't God's will for your life. It was a close the door. Uh, God wouldn't want, you know, all that illness or sickness or close to death, you know, experiences to happen. And through that, I began to learn how to rejoice in mm. sufferings and find uh, that this was essential for character building, met my future wife during that time and kind of other ministry things that came later. Um, so it certainly was a, a huge time for realizing that even if, even when bad things happen, it doesn't mean that obviously that's not God's will. Sometimes those bad things can be used for good. Sometimes that suffering is part of God's plan uh, yeah. for something far greater. So the, the door had just opened with, with Omar and, and your experience, because I've, I've read your book, Super Plan. And the, you know the gospel was getting out in that in that village, right. and then whack, <laughs> you're you're in the middle of a, a pretty you know not just a medical crisis but a, a battle, probably a spiritual battle. Um, yeah, and sometimes we we look at God's guidance 
Mm. And we think it's going to be very specific, you mm. know, like this is just how it's going to happen. That's, it makes sense. For instance, if the Wassalu are going to be reached, the guy who really wants to reach them and learn their language to do it would be able to somehow live there and be a part of it. Now, in God's guidance, it often takes this very curvy, messy route uh, that you can't point to any human <laughs> that would arrange yeah. that. And so that's certainly what happened uh, with me. I had this three and a half year battle with weakness and illness couldn't really do much physical um i married during the time had our first mm. child and we're praying about what's next and this guy calls from new york i didn't want to stay in new york city mm. my wife and i wanted to go live overseas i'd experienced what it was like to be the only christian among an unreached ethnic group even an unengaged ethnic group and we show up in New York, and the very first West African uh, we meet on a two- to three-day survey trip is this guy named Musa, uh, and he happens to be Wasalu. Wow. Out of 1,600 ethnic groups in mm -hmm. West Africa, he happens to be from the same small ethnic group I was living among. And within five minutes, I learned that he was a Christian from a Muslim background, first one uh, we had mm -hmm. ever met or heard of. And he has this incredible story of about to die in and out of a coma. The doctor had said he had one week left to live. And he has this miraculous dream vision of Jesus healing in the name of Jesus. He's healed after the dream, uh, goes and finds a Bible after he has two more dreams where God reminds him you would be saved through this Jesus. And he reads the Bible, Old and New Testament, cover to cover in a month or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, just shames us. <laughs> uh, he, he said it had all the answers for all of the questions I'd always asked. And after he tells us this incredible story of how he came to faith in Christ through that and 22 years of his family, his people really trying to kill him, uh, he ends up in New York. He says, it's a miracle you walked into my life today. He goes, for 22 years, I have felt called to be an evangelist to my people, the Wasalu, but mm -hmm. I've never known how because it has just been me. <laughs> and every day for the last few years, I had been praying for the first churches mm -hmm. to be started among the Wasalu, not knowing mm -hmm. how I could you, be you a part in of West that work. Africa. Mm -hmm. In West Africa. And he's half in dead. New York. I can't visit the country. Uh, <laughs> so how can that happen? Yeah. Well, God puts us together. Even on that night, there was a Wassaloo meeting in the Bronx we were invited mm. to. So God made it clear we were to move to New York. Fast forward several years, and there are uh, maybe 20 plus people that have been baptized in that very same person's village. The first churches have been started among this uh, this ethnic group, the Wasalu, without missionaries living there, um, mm -hmm. just kind of following through relational lines from cities, other people following up. So we couldn't have, I mean, a white guy from Texas showing up, meeting a persecuted African Muslim brother in an African American mm -hmm. neighborhood in Harlem. And that's what God uses to help see some of the, the first Wasalu churches start. I'm, I'm just saying, I think you uh, retell the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But, you know, the Lord says, just get out into the desert, Philip. <laughs> okay, so for you, it was um, just get to New York and uh, we'll plant churches in West Africa amongst the wasps. Right, yeah, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. And, look, I, I meant to say I really enjoyed uh, reading your story, reading Superplan. Thank and you. And just the, the way you, you tell your story and the story of people like Omar and Musa, but there's this sense of, you know, there's really a story about what God, God is doing. 
in all the, you know, in your sick, I'm sorry to make light of your sickness. But right. <laughs> you know, your, That's what I do. <laughs> your sickness, where should we be living? Where are we minister? We meet uh, Musa and, and God brings it all back to that, to that village um, that you've been evacuated out of. Yeah, and I, and I really, that's what I wanted to bring out in the book. So it's a good mm. sign is that, um, I mean, this is obviously my particular role in God's super plan that's un, unfolded as well as these other people. But we realize who we are when we realize we're part of God's story. Yeah. Uh, we realize why we exist when we find mm. our role in God's super plan and interpret the good things, the bad things, mm. all of these things as, as God's super plan. Yeah. And we were able to find meaning uh, in all of that. We're able to be used by God because we, we see things in that, that way. Um, and so certainly that's been the, the case of when I shifted from merely just inviting Jesus into my life, mm-hmm. which meant that, God, this is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I like doing. These are my strengths. You know, come and use my mm-hmm. strengths. Uh, and then you shift to what does God desire even that little bitty shift in questions can have completely different results because that means God might use your weakness. <laughs> it means that yeah. God might use, uh, you know, uh, go send you to places you never thought you would go or have you be in roles that you avoided um, yeah. and you wouldn't have invited Jesus into. <laughs> mm. um, and certainly that's been the case with me. And so I really wanted to help people think more about their own lives um, through this, this book, instead of just, you know, saying, well, that was a good story about that person. I really wanted to invite people into the same super plan, even though no one's going to be a copy of someone else or our roles are different, but at least start asking that question. What's my role? Mm. And you became a different person through those experiences, even through the health crisis and the weakness that it, it brought on. You know, yeah, it's one of the interesting things about suffering. And there are stories of three Christians from a Muslim background I tell at length in the story as well. They had uh, more persecuted suffering, mm-hmm. physical suffering at the hand of people in their village um, or towns. Uh, so that's different than the, the health suffering I had. Nevertheless, when I've looked uh, biblically, when you look at just people around the world that are fruitful mm. in their lives. It seems like suffering is a common yeah. element in those mm. people's lives. And there are lots of people, there, are, there have been movements even in history uh, where suffering has taken place and people have shrunk back from that and it, it just disappeared. You know, mm. they were taken away uh, because they, they did not, stay within God's super plan in the midst of suffering. But there are those people and movements throughout history where suffering came and they stuck with God's super plan in the midst and become usually the most fruitful, content, and joyful uh, followers of Christ you'd, you'd ever meet. And so uh, it's not that any of us wish suffering to take place as if this is some virtue to just go and seek suffering. Um, but when it comes and you you become a follower of Christ, you will be the smell of life to some and the smell of death to others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just mm-hmm. the scripture. And so when that suffering takes place, you don't shrink back from it. Uh, you're able to see that in the through the lens of God's super plan. Yes. And 
What unfolded next in New York? Because uh, a whole new era opened up, not just uh, for West Africa, but, you know. Yeah, I came to New York just because I wanted to work with West Africans and, you know, that that Mm. was our connection. But I ended up spending half of my time researching the ethnic groups of Metro New York. At first, it was just kind of a job that was better than Starbucks. And eventually, I mean, it didn't take long, first month or so, it really became an equal calling because I, I was discovering two million Jews in Metro New York, a million Muslims, half a million Hindus, 80,000 Sikhs. And I could count on maybe one hand the amount of people that just saw a need and were actively ministering among these people, welcoming them, loving them, seeking Mm -hmm. to start churches, evangelize disciple that were not trained overseas or were not of that people group that had come to faith and were reaching out, you know, to their own people, just the people that believers in the city that saw a need it was maybe on one hand, you know, it was people like myself that came back, trained as a missionary in West Africa. It was a Muslim background, Christian from Pakistan, reaching out to Pakistanis. But I knew that we had to raise the missions climate in our cities, um, especially with the world coming over half urban and moving even more so in the coming decades. Uh, a lot of our great movement stories are coming have come from rural areas thankfully there are more that are happening in urban environments but it it does create uh, some complex dynamics when you're talking about a destruction of these homogenous (laughs) units you know that we talk about uh, where it's just natural and easy or uh, like vast amount of of uh, oikoses you know that people have where it naturally spreads uh, in some ways, that's a hindrance to the movements in cities um, because there are less connections with like a, a strong ethno-linguistic group. On the same time, it can actually contribute to movements because those boundaries around socioeconomic, sociolinguistic, cultural groups are becoming more porous. Mm. And so people are uh, interacting with this group and that group Mm. a lot more easily in cities than they would other places. They're being uh, exposed to new ideas. Uh, They are uh, at all different levels economically and meeting different people. And just there's so much more diversity, obviously, in cities where people are connected in ways they wouldn't be in in villages and rural areas. So in that sense, the the gospel jump easily, uh, more easily in cities from different cultural groups to to others than it would in other environments. And so that's a great hope that we have in cities. So as this research came and I was getting the experience of, of what could happen with West Africans and the, and the spread of the gospel in cities back to that, that homeland, this wasn't like just a good idea <laughs> that maybe if someone took this, it would, every, this stuff was happening naturally. Uh, whatever people found in the cities, they were naturally reshaping African society, Asian society, European society from cities. It was already connected and the technological advances, even in the last mm. 10 years, have just enhanced that. So what a great space for the gospel. Mm. When you look at most unreached people groups around the world are that way, not necessarily because of their religion, Uh, or some great resistance uh, theologically, it's really because of the solidarity they have with the group. And to leave that would bring shame upon them, Mm. 
upon others. And the greatest value you have in society is to be connected with the group. You find your belonging, who you are in your relationship with the group. Uh, well, when people migrate into cities, um, they're starting to find their identity in other things. They become part of that fringe of that mm. solidarity with the group, but have so much influence. It's not like they're a fringe person that you know has been cast out uh, because of their exposure in cities to different ideas and experiences and jobs and whatever. Uh, they are impacting that solidarity. They're actually becoming a gatekeeper as to what that group should believe or think or how they should change. And instead of that just happening with their exposure to hip hop or whatever else coming from cities, it's a great space for the gospel. And so I've found these big daddies and big mamas, you know, which we, we call them in, in an African language when they come to New York. Uh, they are very eager to share what they're learning about Jesus uh, with others back home. And of course, we, we got to have people come from the outside always. It doesn't end that. But it, it means a lot more when I'm coming in as an outsider into a village or a, an, an oikos in, in Africa, and I'm not coming under the name of some development project or something like mm. that. I'm coming under the name of the Big Daddy in New York, and he's sending a greeting to those people going, hey, uh, I know this guy looks strange, and he talks about Jesus, but I'm learning a lot about Jesus, and we need to get close to this we have had false impressions. Well, that opens up completely new doors for the gospel in these, these communities. Mm. Chris, have you got a story of where that's unfolded in, in that sort of way? Oh, sure. I mean, I can think of uh, just a recent one. So this one, this is so recent, it wouldn't have been in the, in the book, but there is a a uh, person from one of the most unreached West African ethnic groups, 200 known believers out of, seven to eight million people uh, in her ethnic group. Uh, she comes to faith in New York City. She also has her incredible vision, dream, healing story that still play, st- takes place in America. It's not just for mm. overseas. Uh, she was about to kill herself. Uh, and that's when Jesus appeared to her. And in that, uh, she met uh, actually Yusuf, who I write about in the book. And Yusuf is from Burkina Faso. And so Yusuf shared the gospel with her. She came to Christ. She actually had a seven plus dreams, visions of Jesus in this process. I was there for her baptism. She was dancing with joy. She came up to me afterwards and she says, I don't care. I have, God told me that he was going to save me, but that I was going to be a messenger to my people so that they can be free from all of their afflictions. And so she says, I'll, I'll go back to my country. I don't care if they kill me. I have to go and tell them so they can have this hope. And so in that process, through whatever they're using these days, Viber, WhatsApp, Yes, you know Skype, all of the discipleship, you know, all of these things. She's she's been able to see family members come to Christ just in her first month or two of coming to faith in in her country, in West Africa, and among her people living in Italy, among her people mm-hmm. living in Europe. I think her sister is flying to New York in August to be baptized with uh, her sister by her side. The father who. 40 years ago, went to, the, to Israel as a UN peacekeeper. He made some sort of vow at Jesus's grave because they're big on saints and her, this mm-hmm. ethnic group and made a vow to the saint Jesus that he would, he would give him a daughter. And so here comes 40 years later, 
this child had been estranged from the family because of infighting and comes back and tells the father she's accepted Christ, but also asks forgiveness for all that she's done in the past to hurt them. The father calls my friend Yusuf here in New York and says, this is amazing. Told the story about his vow 40 years earlier. He says, Jesus, Jesus has reconciled my family. And so he has opened the door for this entire family to be open to hearing about Christ and receiving him, even though they come from a very strong Islamic sect that there'd be only a few known believers among. Mm. Mm. Wow. I'm, I'm just pausing to, to take that in. That's, that is incredible. And it's not, you're saying it's not a one-off. Um, this is, uh, a pattern that you're seeing that mm. there are what you call global cities that where it's just a phone call or a Skype or an email away from unreached people groups around the world. Yeah. And in the past, you know, even when I lived in Mali close to 20 years ago, there was no good way to connect back home. Uh, you'd have a phone call and, and it, it, would, it would sound like that. You'd pay $5 for that privilege of hearing mm. you know, someone's cracked up voice. And they didn't even have Skype, you know, back then. Well, these days it's free yeah. constantly to call people back and forth. Even my mud hut, no electricity, no running water village in Mali has cell phones these days. Mm. And so that's how connected it is. And all that goes back into cities they are sharing whatever they're learning back home. And so when they're having something that's changing their life, uh, giving them new hope and meaning, and they've come here to make money or whatever it is, and they're finding that that's going to be empty to make them content, uh, they're eager to share what the real story is of how transformation can happen back home. And we're seeing it Africa, Asia, Europe, South America, all over. So even more imperative that as people come to know Christ, as they go on in discipleship and experience what church is, everything you do with them has got to be simple and transferable, that it can jump across the airwaves, that it can go from New York City to an African village. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I mean, it happens both ways. I I, I met someone the other day in a subway and I was so excited because he was a Muslim background Christian and we were talking in an African language. But then when he started talking about religion, he immediately switched from the African language to French. And so that's interesting. I said, I don't speak great French. Can you tell me that in Jula? Uh, he could not tell me, which is the African language. He could not tell me about Jesus in his language. He had only learned how to speak about religion in this other language, in this case, mm-hmm. French. Well, if you think about that, the reverse of that, wouldn't it be a shame if we saw all these people coming into cities, coming to Christ, and we train them in ways of church or ways of communicating about the Bible and the gospel, and it all happened in something that would not relate to them being able to share with their people. Uh, like that guy couldn't share with me in an African language. And so that means we've got to look at, obviously, simple ways of doing church where they can even decide, evangelize, disciple, and start churches over 
technology, which is is happening. You know, there are there are people that are uh, beginning that process. Have seen that happen. You know, around the world with leading their oikos to Christ in these various places and discipling, and then helping form them into groups wherever they're at. Mm-hmm. And God, I guess the, the next phase was God has put on your heart that this is not just about your ministry, but it's, it's opened up now to how can you mobilize and deploy others to reach uh, global cities. So tell us how, yeah, so, how that came about. Yeah, several years ago, uh, we were just asking that question, what's it going to take, you know, to see all these different unreached people groups engaged with the gospel, see fruit among them and spread back to their homelands. And we are struggling uh, with this piece of trying to make that fit into existing organizations and, and everything else. And so we decided to start an organization called Global Gates, uh, which had this vision of reaching the ends of the earth through Global Gateway Cities. Um, friend Brad, who you've had on here before, I've moved to the city after experience in Southeast Asia. And uh, we just began praying together about uh, what that might look like to start an organization for a transnational world. <laughs> you know, a lot of times our organizations are divided of North America. You have this and then there's overseas. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the world these people live in anymore. Mm-hmm. It's all connected together. And especially with our world heading that way and knowing that we're often weakest and seeking to start movements in and through cities. Uh, we wanted to uh, fail the best, you know, at that and <laughs> have everyone else learn lessons from our, our failures to hopefully uh, spur this on a bit. So we started Global Gates about five and a half years ago, 2000, uh, was it 12, late 2012. Uh, and now we do have workers and, I don't know, 20 cities or so and uh, countries beyond the United States. There's Global Gates Canada. They're, you know, workers that are just, as the cities go, they're following relational contacts to India and Nepal and Thailand and North Africa and wherever else they lead. So the, the niche of Global Gates would be where can you access the most unreached people of the world that have voluntarily migrated to cities with other Christians who have migrated into those cities, as well as Christians in the host culture that would be very open, you know, to, you're not going to be worried about your platform to be in the country and being kicked out. You can be very open and bold and everything with the gospel. And through those networks, you know, spread the gospel around the world. I think we're just barely tapping the surface of what could be done uh, with with the global connections that are coming in cities. So the sweet spot of, of our ministry and, and what other ministries hopefully are going to be finding in these cities is where are some of the, the least reached people groups of the world? Not just who's the most unreached in the cities, but who are the least reached in the world that have left their areas where it's very hard for Christians to be open and bold without you know, getting killed and everything else right off. Um, but then meet these people in the cities where they can, those, they're just going to naturally spread it back to where they're at. Um, so that's what we're, we're looking at now. We're kind of creating a, um, 
a database that we have on our globalgates.info website under resources where we're identifying the most strategic unreached people groups that have moved to North America where workers are most needed based on the global status of evangelical Christianity among those groups, the significance of their presence in various cities. Sometimes, sometimes the most strategic places to reach some of these groups are in these global gateway cities because some Jewish groups have all left their homelands and their largest populations are in places like New York. Some of them like Tibetans, their largest concentrations out of China, India, and Nepal would be in New York City or Toronto. Uh, So let's focus on those groups there and then just follow the networks back into their home. Visit movements.net for links to... Chris Clayman's latest book, Superplan, A Journey into God's Story, and links to Global Gates. This has been episode 172 of the Movements Podcast.